Just think for a minute how different our city would look if for one day every Christian in this city took this seriously. It's just us Christians. Like, I don't even expect non-Christians to act like us. What if we, for one day, did nothing from rivalry or conceit? There's no need to compete with other churches or other people or no need to compete with your coworker who seems to be advancing faster than you and no need to compete with your spouse or your children. No need to compete in anything. No need to be conceited. To think that your opinions and experience and passions and desires and livelihood are more important than another. Just for one day, if we chose to live like this, do you think our neighbors would notice? Do you think the church would begin to move in the city in a way that the city says, that's something remarkable? Hi, this is Chris from The Point, a church where you can come as you are and you can text in your questions. You may not be sure what you believe about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible, and that's okay. Because faith is not about having it all figured out, and God is not waiting for you to put your life together before He'll connect with you. If you'd like to find out more about The Point, you can visit our website at thepointknox.com or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Point Knox. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are. Well, as I mentioned earlier, good morning to each and every one of you. It is good to be here with you this morning. For those of you joining us online, I'm glad that you can join us online. It's always a pleasure to know that whether you're near or far or home or here, you can be a part of this family. We are in the middle of going through a book called Philippians, a letter written to the church in Philippi. And if you haven't been here with us these last couple weeks, maybe you're like, that's weird. Who are these people? Well, the Philippians were people who were mostly um, vets, former military men and women. They were uh, Roman citizens and made to be a colony uh, to proclaim to the whole world around them what it was like to live as Romans. And last week we got to kind of the crux, the thesis, the main point of this entire letter that Paul was writing. This entire letter is aimed at these verses, so let your life be, or live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Another translation, let your life as a citizen in the kingdom be worthy of the gospel, this good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And in this vein, Paul writes a really dangerous thing. You see, there is this understanding for the people that life was meant to serve the emperor, the kingdom, their land that they lived in, and they were meant to not just serve it, but proclaim it for the whole world to see. Our way of life, our kingdom, our Lord, the emperor, Caesar, he's the greatest, and our life is the best. But when Paul tells them to live worthy of the gospel, he warns them. Living as a Christian is actually different than living like everybody else. 
See, as a Christian, our priorities need to change. Our response to situations needs to be different. And no, this is not a need that comes up front like before you can become a Christian. You see, Jesus and Paul and the rest of Scripture, nobody places a burden on you or me that says, first, be like this, and believe like this, and act like this, and then you can have these things. Rather, the picture painted in Scripture is this good news. God gives abundantly to us. He takes us from that broken place, that sinful place, that mess that we're in, and in that mess, he says, it's okay. I love you exactly the way you are. And then he continues to say, because of my love, let me bring you someplace new. Because of what you have, let me show you a new way of life, one that will be filled with joy and peace and love. And as Paul expands upon this life in this letter, today we get to a really, really challenging thing. A thing that I think, honestly, if you and I could take this seriously for just one day, our relationships would be better. Our neighbors would know how much we love them a little bit more. I think if you and I for just one day could actually begin to try to take this as truth, not just to be heard, but to be lived out, everything would look different. So here's what it says, beginning in chapter two, if you'd like to follow along, you can use your phones, you can find this at thepointknox.com or in a Bible app. Uh, you're also welcome to use a physical Bible. Uh, we're not anti those in this place by any means. Chapter two, Philippians chapter two begins like this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul, he begins this next section after challenging them, you should live worthy of this good news. He says this, if there's any encouragement, any comfort, any joy, anything I can give to you, this is the thing I want you to take. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Look, if there's any hope in Christ, this is what it is. Be unified. Stand together. 
have one mind. And I don't think Paul by any means meant one mind means you all think alike. You all act alike or you all believe alike. No, having one mind is about something so much more. You see, there's numerous times in the book of Acts and in other letters where the church doesn't agree. Where the way they propose going forward looks different in some communities than other communities. What does it mean to have one mind? It doesn't mean to all be in agreement, but it means to all share the same purpose and the same goal. To focus on the things that matter most, that which is essential. I, I think we got a little picture this week of what it looks like to be of one mind. Little did I know in 2020 that at the start of 2021, we would all come together and be unified around an old man in mittens. Who could have ever guessed that? <laughs> Being of one mind does not take away the ways that we're different, but it says let's look for the things that are common, the things that really matter, the things we can hold most dear together. And then he continues. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Just think for a minute how different our city would look if for one day every Christian in this city took this seriously. It's just us Christians. Like, I don't even expect non-Christians to act like us. What if we, for one day, did nothing from rivalry or conceit? There's no need to compete with other churches or other people or no need to compete with your coworker who seems to be advancing faster than you and no need to compete with your spouse or your children. No need to compete in anything. No need to be conceited. To think that your opinions and experience and passions and desires and livelihood are more important than another just for one day, if we chose to live like this, do you think our neighbors would notice? Do you think the church would begin to move in the city in a way that the city says, that's something remarkable? You see, far too often, we as the people of God think that because we're the people of God and because we're forgiven, we can get away with saying and doing whatever we want. Who can stop us, right? We're forgiven. And so we act not with others' self-interest, but with our own. We act and we speak not so that we can be united with one mind, but so that our voice can be heard. The church, the very people of God, rarely looks like it. And we wonder why the world sometimes says, what good is there to find in the church? Who cares if you're a Christian or not, right? Paul, he says, to live this life worthy of the gospel is to take this attitude of complete and absolute humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look, if you want to live the way God has created you to live, consider other people to be more significant than you. If we all do this together, 
If we collectively say, you know what? You are more important than I. Wouldn't that be a really wonderful place to live? And not in the awkward thing, like maybe you've seen this before, like, oh, after you. No, after you. No, after you. And you just like stand there and nobody's going through the door because you both want to let the other go first, right? No, not like that. But genuinely and deeply, let me consider your interests. What is it you need in this moment? What is it you're fearing right now? How are you feeling about this issue? Rather than needing to voice this is where I stand or what I think, what if we stop to consider what do you think? This week I was having breakfast with somebody and shared with me about a man who I had no idea, I had never heard about, maybe you have, a man named Howard Baker. Have you heard about him? He was a Tennessee senator and uh, I did some digging after hearing about him and had to look him up. I don't know much about his politics, so this is not a comment on his politics. But but what I will say that really astounded me about this man is he's well known for working together across party lines to make a difference in the Senate. I thought that's pretty neat. And I was reading about how well he could work with kindness and respect for people who had opinions that were fundamentally different than his. And this quote, uh, I, I came across this quote, and this is what he said. He was asked, how do you work with people you disagree with so much? Like, how do you act with such respect and kindness, even in these heated moments? And this was his answer. I always try to consider the other person might be right. See, to act with humility, to live with other people's interest in mind, is to say, what if I'm wrong? Like, what if all the things that I'm holding dear are misguided? Could that be? Now, this doesn't mean we have no spine and we believe nothing and we're just tossed to and fro. But rather, we approach every situation by saying, what if they are right? Does that change what I think? Or how I treat them? Or how I talk to them? See, this also works really well like in your relationships. It doesn't have to just be politics and these people who have big differences. What about your spouse or your children or your coworker? And you get in a fight because they did something wrong. It's always their fault, do you know that? And what if for a moment, rather than seeing all the things they did wrong, you said, what if they're right in this situation? Would that change my response? Paul, he says, have this humility that treats others or considers others as more significant than yourself. Now, there's a false view of humility out there that says you can't think well of yourself. Have you ever heard that? Somebody compliments you. It's like, hey, you look great today. It's not me. God gave me this body. (laughs) Okay. Hey, good job on that project. Oh, it wasn't me. God did it all. Did he? No, God actually used you for whatever that thing is that you were doing. So yes, God gets the glory, but you can still take the compliment. Like humility doesn't mean you think less of yourself. It means you think of yourself less. You put other people ahead of your needs. Now here's where this gets really tricky. Sometimes the best way to put other people's needs first also includes putting your needs first. 
See, think quite simply. If I want to love and care for you, and I'm hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and drowning in over my head and have no idea how I'm going to feed my children tomorrow, it's going to be really difficult to care for your needs. So the responsibility to take care of my finances equips me to love my neighbors. Or maybe you're somebody who just loves to give and give and give, and you give so much of your time and your energy that you're tired and worn out and physically suffering. Your health is declining because you've given so much. Well, it's really hard to continue to give when you aren't there to do so. So maybe you should take some time for a nap or to work out or to eat so that you have the energy to continue to love others first. See, humility does not mean you neglect yourself. Just means as often as possible you consider what might somebody else need or desire first. Paul, he continues to describe humility, this mind that we should have. He describes it by describing the mind of Christ. And this little section here is incredibly profound. See, Paul, in a few short sentences, he sums up why is the gospel so remarkable? Why is the very thing that unites us, the thing we believe, so truly unlike anything else this world has to offer? Have this mind among yourselves, which is, in, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, the very good news that sets us apart from this world and makes us fundamentally different than all the good people out there that we love and all the people that we know who aren't Christians but are pretty good people, the fundamental difference between Christians and the rest of the world is we believe in a king who would step down from his throne. We worship a Lord who doesn't count his status as God, the thing to hold dear, but instead comes into our broken and messy and dirty world to take on a body that gets hungry and tired and weak, to experience sorrow and suffering and to weep. We don't serve a distant God who just sits back and watches things unfold. We serve a God who loves you and me so much that he would come and take on our very lives to live as we've lived, but do it perfectly in a way that you and I can't. To suffer and to die, not just any death, but a brutal death. See, Paul stresses even death on a cross because death on a cross was the most humiliating, most shameful, most disgraceful kind of death there was. Not just because the Romans were really, really good at torturing people and it was excruciatingly painful, but it was really humiliating because to die hanging on a tree was to be considered the most cursed of all people. 
And in the cultures, even the pagan cultures, to die a death where you were hanging exposed for the birds of the air to eat your body was the most shameful way you could die. Jesus didn't just come and live a long life and at the end of his long life die in his sleep, this peaceful thing. No, he humbled himself, considering the needs of others, you and me, and not just us, all of this broken creation. Considering our needs, he humbled himself to suffer and to die. A brutal, humiliating, shameful death. One that was so bad, those who were civilized folk, those who were the educated people, wouldn't even talk about the cross. Yes, we knew it existed, but we don't talk about that. That's beneath us. And it's this death Jesus died. Paul, he's writing, he says, live worthy of that gospel. Live worthy of the reality that this God, our God, would literally give everything up for the sake of those whom he loves. If this is our God, and we're called Christians, which quite literally means little Christs, If you are a Christian, your life should progressively begin to look more and more like Christ. So I ask you, where this last week have you put your interests ahead of others? What fights have you insisted on your way that you were right? What issues have you said, I know that somebody else needs help, but that's inconvenient or not my problem? Have this mind among you. Like Christ, though he was in the form of God, he humbled himself to take on flesh and die. See, there's this really remarkable thing that happens at the end of this that I think we often skip over when we talk about the death of Jesus. We focus on the cross and we look to his pain and his humility and we forget the second half of what happened. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth And under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus didn't just humble himself and then remain there. He didn't just humble himself and remain in this place of shame and disgrace. No, it was because he humbled himself that God lifted him up higher. Because he came low, God lifted him on high. That he would have the name that no other name, that that, that every other name or every other person would bow down to his name. Because he was brought low and made nothing, he was then lifted high. I've been a big fan of C.S. Lewis, if you don't know his writings. He's a British writer who uh, often wrote books, novels that were intended to help convey theological things. And, And many of his books he writes like aimed at children, which is right at my reading level. It's perfect. Uh, And he writes with this imagery to convey what faith is like in a way that really makes me stop and think. And there's one book he wrote called The Great Divorce. 
If you've never read it, it's weird, but it's also really neat. See, in this book, The Great Divorce, there's this man who lives in this gray town, and this gray town is perpetually worse and worse. Like, imagine gloomy, dark winter, nobody's around, nobody's happy, everybody's sad, and they just progressively want less and less to do with one another. Like, it's a really miserable place. And this guy, he finds himself boarding a bus that takes him on this journey, and this bus flies into the the sky and then lands on this cliff. And along the way, he's having conversations with people, people who are really not that interested in him, people who are really distracted by their intellectual pursuits or distracted by their loves and the things they held dear that were really empty before. And this bus lands on this cliff and they begin to discover this magnificent and painful world. Magnificent because everything is infinitely greater and bigger than they could imagine. But because of that, they themselves hurt experiencing this new world. It causes them pain to discover this infinitely greater world. And what this character discovers is that he and the others have died. And this is for them the journey between life here and life to come. And along the way, they're given the option to continue to pursue this life to come or given the option to go back to what they had before. And throughout the book, many people turn back to the bus and go back to the life they had before where everything was miserable and broken and everything was painful, but that was better for them than enduring the hardship to come than suffering for the great things still to come. And along the way, temptations like lust try to destroy people. And along the way, false love and pity and fake compassion try to bring people away from the good and into this other miserable life. There's one moment in particular that I want to share with you, and I love the way C.S. Lewis paints this. You see, this whole thing is a metaphor for the life of Christianity and the life that God offers and the good news of the gospel. And this main character and all the others are being encouraged by these spirits that are infinitely bigger and more powerful than they are to come further up and further in, to go up this huge mountain And the more they go up, the better it will get. The less it will hurt. The more they will experience this new reality and forget the old. And asking about this, the the main character asks, like, how can we go when it hurts so much? And one of these guides lifts him up and says, well, let me carry you. Let me take you there. And they're having this dialogue back and forth. And at one point, this spirit guy that's helping him go further up and further in says to him this, says, we are all at one point in that place. This is a paraphrase. We're in that place of this gray town. And only those who have been further up can come back further down to help us in this journey. And the greatest of them all is the one who was the furthest, who was the highest. He alone can become the lowest to help every one of us get to this place, this life, this beauty, this thing to come. And I love the imagery that he uses there. This idea that our life is just progressing forward towards something greater. But along the way, there's a lot of pain, a lot of hardship, because we're not yet ready for it. 
We're not yet equipped to handle it. We need the help of another. And the one who comes from the highest up is able to become the lowest for all of us. In different words, C.S. Lewis is describing this very idea in Philippians. Because Christ was the highest up, God himself, he was able to become the lowest for all of us. In turn, he was lifted back up to that place forevermore. When you and I choose to have this mind among us, choose to live this way, seek to be less for the sake of our neighbors, our families, and our enemies, when we choose to give up our own agenda and interests and rights, we actually get to see God at work not only in them, but in the things he returns to us. See, when we give up our own need to be right, when we consider perhaps the other person is right in this moment, we find a lot of room for healing and bitterness begins to fall away. We find a lot of room in that moment for the recognition that God is enough no matter what else happens. We find a lot of room in becoming less to realize just how much God loves us and thinks about us, and desires us. So this is my encouragement to each one of you today. Where have you made yourself more? Where do you need to become less this week? To consider the needs and the interests of others, and say maybe in this moment, being united in the same mind is more important than being right, or being heard, or getting my way. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your son to step down from his throne, the highest of highs, God, to become a lowly servant, to lay down his life for each one of us. We thank you that he would not just die, but die a brutal death to suffer for the sake of all of creation that we might in turn be invited into this new life, further up and further in, that we can be invited to this life of pursuing something greater, someone greater than we've ever known before. Forgive us, Lord, for the times where we have lost our focus, where we have counted our own way as the right way and forgotten what others may be thinking or feeling or needing. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we've made more of us and in turn less of you. Cause us to be humble this week, not to think less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less, how we can love and serve and care as you have. God, I pray that our city, that our state, that our country, that the people we interact with would know how great you are by just how little we can choose to become. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue our worship, we're going to continue now by collecting an offering. If you came prepared today to give and you'd like to give with cash or check, something physical, you can do so as you exit today with the buckets in the back corners. Um, you can also put your, those Connect cards back there. So if you haven't yet had a chance to fill those out, there's still some time. Let us know how we can pray for you, how we can care for you this week, and even if there's something you'd like us to reach out and talk
talk with you about. We want to do just that. Uh, if you came prepared and you'd rather give online, electronically, you can do so safely and securely at thepointknox.com by clicking the little blue button in the bottom corner. However you give and whatever you choose to give, know this. We don't give to get God's love, but because we already have it. Thank you. Now my favorite and most challenging part of the service where you guys get to text some questions and I do my best to not look like a bumbling fool. Excellent. Um, the first question is what's on everyone's mind. Who is this new baby-faced pastor? Hello. And what happened to Pastor Adam? Hello. No, I did not get in a fight with a lawnmower, though it might look like it. Uh, yes, I am still Pastor Adam, the same guy. Um, it started out just out of boredom and like, hey, why not? Because that's how my facial hair and my hair tends to be changed. Uh, and then after shaving, I realized something a little sadder and more depressing. Uh, I realized looking at myself in the mirror, I really don't like the way I look without a beard. And, uh, and I also realized that a few extra pounds have gone in the face. And so I'm going to intentionally choose to be clean shaven for a season. Uh, until I can learn to like myself however I look. So going forward, text in questions and compliments, uh, and we no. will share those after the service. Um, okay, these next two are kind of uh, together, um, so I'll read both of them. First of all, one is from a six-year-old, what does begotten mean? <laughs> Followed by rereading the Nicene Creed multiple times that Jesus is begotten, not made. What is the purpose of the emphasis here? Was there a confusion or disagreement among the early church about Jesus and his relationship with the Father? Great questions. So I'll... The second one was from the six-year-old. I believe that, yes. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll come back to begotten here in a moment. Um, were there confusion? Was there confusion about the relationship? Absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of confusion going, how does it work that like they're the same God and they're different? We're not quite sure. And, and most of that creed was actually responses to, we don't really know how it works, but we know how it doesn't work. So one of the uh, things that was deemed heretical, they said that's not consistent with, with what we know to be true, uh, was this idea that, well, if there's a father, then there must be a son. And there therefore must have been a time when Jesus wasn't uh, because how else would he become the son, right? That seems logical. Um, for that six-year-old out there, there was a time when you didn't exist in your parents' mind. It wasn't a thing. You weren't a thing. Um, so the, the question was, how, how can God always be and Jesus always be if there was a time when he was born and we celebrate Christmas? And to be totally honest, I, I don't get it all. Uh, but I trust it, and we can have lots of drinks and long conversations to try to figure it out. So to the what does begotten mean? That's a great question. A um, couple different ways that begotten can be read. Uh, in the very natural sense, you and I are begotten from our parents, meaning our parents were a part of our creation and our coming to be. They made us into what we are now. Um, but that doesn't really fit with Jesus because he always was. So it's begotten, not made. Like in some way he comes from the Father even though he was there in the very beginning at the dawn of creation. So if that's confused you, we'll do a <laughs> deeper dive in point leftovers because it's confused Christians for 2,000 years. All right, next question. What is your favorite C.S. Lewis book? Is it The Great Divorce or something else? <sighs> Uh, there's a lot of good ones. The Great Divorce is a really neat one. I like that imagery. I think uh, 
his space trilogy, that's what I'm currently reading, and it's super weird. It's very strange. Uh, if you haven't read it, man, it's odd, but it's, it's neat. Um, I also really liked uh, the screw tape letters, which is basically a demon writing to his nephew demon about how to torture people. It's really fascinating to think about the things that may happen in spiritual warfare. Yeah. All right, last question. How do you practice humility without becoming a map people step all over? How do you find that balance? Great. Yeah, so humility is not, not thinking like your life doesn't matter and your opinions don't matter. But it's considering that the other persons might matter as well or that they might be right. So how do you not become a map? Well, you set healthy boundaries. Like for example, if you want to love and serve um, people who are hungry, that doesn't mean every person you meet who's hungry, you have to give them $100 to go buy groceries. But you can say, hey, let me get you a meal. Or you can say, right now, I don't have anything to give. And that's okay. Or, or with maybe your coworkers, you want to practice humility and they just keep taking advantage of that. You can set boundaries and say, hey, it's not okay when you treat me like garbage. If you're going to continue to treat me like this, I'm not going to have lunch with you or I'm not going to do this. And then when they do cross that line, you need to hold to your boundary and walk away from that situation. And if they come back and there's an opportunity for healing, well, then humility says, I'm not going to hold the past against them. I'm going to give forgiveness and try again. In marriage, this is really ideal. When you get into a fight or any kind of dilemma, have the humility to say, what if the other person's right? Which then can lead to the question, what might I have done wrong? And like, what if you try to solve your, your problem by beginning with what you might have done wrong? Hey, I recognize I took the wrong tone of voice. I still believe what I said, but I want to talk about that lovingly. Would that change the way you approach it? So that's my answer. Have boundaries and also what might the other person be needing or feeling? Um, that was the last question, but someone did text in a prayer request. So it says, after f over four years, many appointments, my father is having weight loss surgery one week from tomorrow. After this one, two hips replaced. So I'd love for everyone to be praying for him. Okay. Well, let's just pray now and we'll have the benediction. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of healing. And God, we thank you that you've given us doctors and nurses and medicine and all kinds of techniques to bring healing. And we also thank you that you bring miraculous healing. So Lord, we pray for your peace. We pray for your strength. We pray for wisdom for the doctors and nurses. And God, we pray for healing that you would pour this out after so many years of being sought. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your goodness and your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now as you go, receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen. Amen. Have a good week. Thank you for listening to one of our Sunday morning messages. If this message has made an impact in your life, please let us know. Simply fill out the Contact Us page on thepointknox.com. And if you'd like to be a part of supporting The Point Ministry, simply go to thepointknox.com forward slash support. Don't hesitate to contact us or join us in person every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We pray this message has an impact in your life or at least makes it easy for you to connect with God where you are.